What are you supposed to do when your plans go horribly wrong? You can give up and make the best of how things have turned out, or you can dig in and keep trying. That's what our four would-be bank robbers from last week decided to do. But no matter what they tried, things just kept getting worse for them. Crime certainly didn't pay in their case. And if they hadn't had so much bad luck, they wouldn't have had any luck at all. I'm so glad you've joined me for this episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm private investigator Lori Morrison, here to tackle another story from the world of true crime and see what spiritual and safety tips we can find there. I believe that every Christian's calling is to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. Stick around because I'll give you a practical step to do just that. This is Season 3, Episode 50. We're continuing our story of the Santa Claus bank robbery. If you missed last week's episode, I've put a link in the show notes for you so you won't miss out on anything. When we left off, our four armed robbers, Marshall Ratliff, Louis Davis, Henry Helms, and Robert Hill, had just entered the Cisco, Texas First National Bank in order to make their fortune by stealing it from the depositors. Ratliff was dressed in a Santa suit and Louis Davis was still nervous about the idea of shooting anybody. As soon as Ratliff shoved a pistol in the face of a teller and demanded money, things started to go wrong. There were more people in the bank than the robbers had expected, and more just kept walking in. Seeing the men holding guns, a little girl began to cry. She thought they wanted to shoot Santa. Someone else was yelling for someone to shoot. But this was Texas. So many men carried guns, that it was hard to tell if a robber or a good Samaritan was yelling. Lewis Davis was confused. He didn't want to shoot anyone, nor did he want to get shot himself. The little girl who had been crying and her mother made it out the back door of the bank into the alley that the robbers planned to use to make their getaway. I'm not sure if the thieves realized that the police station was so close to the bank they had chosen. The crying girl and her mom burst into the station and screeched that the bank was being robbed. Now again, let's remember, this is Texas back in the 1920s. Within minutes, scores of men with guns were running toward that bank. Back inside, employees of the bank were telling Santa that only one safe could be opened. The other was on a time lock. The robbers grabbed what they could and were ready to run for the hills, when they noticed that someone was looking in through the bank's front window. Panicked, one of them fired a shot, which then, of course, caused someone from the outside to shoot back in. As the police began to converge on the bank, civilians were arming themselves and heading that way too. Remember that $5,000 reward for killing a bank robber in the midst of his crime? No doubt, a lot of the men that wanted to be a hero were eager to grab that because at that time, it was more money than most of them would make at their regular jobs in a year's time. Impulsively, the robbers decided that they needed hostages if they were going to be able to escape. So many people were shooting that bystanders were getting hit. The robbers shoved two young girls into their waiting car while bullets were still flying all around. One of those bullets caught the chief of police. Another caught Louis Davis, the one robber who was so worried about having to shoot anyone. Another policeman took a bullet to the head. The thieves managed to all make it to their stolen getaway vehicle and took off with their tiny hostages. They didn't notice until that moment 
that the car they had stolen was nearly out of gas. They tried to steal another from a couple, but forgot to get the key. They also realized that they had left the money they'd stolen back in the other car, along with the dying Lewis Davis. Once the robbers had gotten out of town, they drove the car into a thicket, released their hostages, and took off on foot. They didn't know that one of those young girls had recognized Marshall Ratliff, despite his unusual Santa disguise. Once police traced the stolen car back to Wichita County, they had a pretty good idea that one of the other robbers just might be Henry Helms. The author of our book this week described Helms as one of those people who, once they've gone off the rails, just never seem to make it back on. The one robber who had never been in trouble with the law before, Louis Davis, died that night, and so did the chief of police who'd been wounded in the shootout. Robber Bob Hill had been wounded and passed out as the three remaining robbers made their way through the brush. Marshall Ratliff, the ringleader of this bumbling gang, had another not-so-bright idea. He thought that they should head back to Cisco, since everyone saw them leave and would never dream they'd come back. They found yet another car to steal, and they made sure that this one had plenty of gas. But since they had no money and no food, they decided they would go to Louis Davis's sister Doris's house. She gave them food and told them that she had heard that Louis had died. She couldn't bring herself to turn them in, but she didn't have to. The police came to her house on Christmas Day asking if she had seen them. She said no, even though they had come to the house and she'd even fed them. After the police left, her husband confronted her about lying to the authorities. She told him even though she had planned on telling the truth, when it came right down to it, she just couldn't. She was going to do one more thing for them and then go to the police and tell them the truth. Doris went to see Henry Helms' wife to find out how to get in touch with Henry's father, the Reverend J.C. Helms. She also asked where she could find a woman named Midge Tellett. She knew that Midge was willing to help find a doctor to tend to their wounds. And the Reverend, his part was to foot the bill. Midge and the doctor seemed to view giving aid to fugitives to be some sort of grand adventure. And that really reminded me of our fascination with the mafia. We love to hear their stories and watch movies based on those stories. We don't always stop to think that many of them are unrepentant killers, like Marshall Ratliff. People with no experience in criminal matters rarely understand what to do and what to definitely not do. These two would-be adventurers got lost trying to find the house where they would meet the robbers. They flagged down a passing car to ask for directions, and the driver just happened to be the sheriff of Shackleford County. Of course, he didn't mention that. When he heard the name of the family home they were looking for, he offered to lead them there. They gratefully and stupidly accepted. Once they all arrived, the sheriff allowed them to knock on the door and waited for Doris and her husband to answer. Then he promptly arrested them all. After Louis Davis's funeral, his sister Doris and her husband were taken into custody too. The press was going wild to get updates to this big story. The famed Texas Rangers had joined the hunt for the fugitives. One of them, Captain Tom Hickman, was regularly featured in true crime magazines of the day. Yes, even back then, we couldn't get enough of these stories. And I think one of the reasons this story is so interesting to me is that it reads almost like fiction with all of the problems that our fugitives had, and yet they still weren't caught. It just doesn't feel real. 
Then after their plan to get help collapsed, they wrecked their getaway car. They noticed the lights of a house shining way down the road. R.C. Wiley lived there with his son, Carl. The three remaining robbers made their way to the house and woke up R.C. He thought it must be his son, Carl, returning from a night out. Instead, it was three strangers with a story that they had just had a car accident and needed help. R.C. wished he had a telephone then because he just couldn't trust these ragged-looking men. And just then, his son Carl pulled up. The robbers pulled out their guns and took the car and Carl. Forcing the young man to drive, they continued their desperate attempt to get away from what they'd done. Eventually, Carl was actually able to talk them into letting him go, but only after he let them steal another car. Once he was away from them, Carl went directly to the Cisco police and shared that he'd heard Ratliff, Helms, and Hill planning to head toward the only place they had any hope of getting help, Wichita Falls. The police in Cisco alerted the authorities in Young County that the fugitives were believed to be headed their way. Now, to be able to actually get to Wichita Falls, the robbers would have to cross the Brazos River, which only had so many bridges. And so that really helped the authorities narrow down where they needed to be looking for them. So, of course, it wasn't long before police spotted the three men in their latest stolen car. Bullets started flying again, and the men abandoned the car to flee on foot. In the hail of gunfire, Ratliff went down. And even though Hill was hit, he and Helms managed to melt into the brush near the river. Ratliff was taken to the hospital, where sleep, food, and not being on the run quickly got him well enough to be hauled off to jail. Hill and Helms were still determined to try to get away, but they were both injured, hungry, tired, and rain had begun to fall. They tried without success to steal yet another car. They tried to light a fire for warmth, but everything they had was soaking wet. Both were starting to run fevers, and Helms was beginning to babble incoherently. They had not eaten for three days, and they ended up stealing feed corn from a nearby barn because they were so desperate. The next day, the pilot of a plane who had been searching for them actually spotted them moving across an open field. Even in their weakened state, they once again managed to elude the posse of men who were chasing after them. But Helms was continuing to get worse and desperately needed medical attention. They decided to try to find a rooming house where they knew the man who ran it, hoping that he would give them help. That decision was the beginning of the end. The biggest manhunt in the history of the state of Texas was almost over. Then it would be time for the trials. We'll hear that next part of the story on our next episode. When I was thinking about this part of the story and what spiritual lessons we might learn from it, I was really drawn to a passage from 1 Timothy chapter 6 in its verses 9 through 11, and I am reading from the NIRV. People who want to get rich are tempted. They fall into a trap. They are tripped up by wanting many foolish and harmful things. Those who live like that are dragged down by what they do. They are destroyed and die. Love for money causes all kinds of evil. Some people want to get rich. They have wandered away from the faith. They have wounded themselves with many sorrows. But you are a man of God. Run away from all these things. Try hard to do what is right and godly. Have faith 
love, and gentleness. Hold on to what you believe. Wow. Now, when you read that, it kind of sounds like Paul wrote this passage after reading this book. I think sometimes we think that as modern people, we're so much more advanced than any group of people that's come before us. But we struggle with the same things that the churches that Paul was writing to struggled with. It just amazes me over and over and over when it's confirmed how relevant the Bible is to our lives today. Of course, I'm guessing that none of us have robbed a bank or killed anybody with a shotgun blast. But Jesus always taught that what was in our hearts was just as important as our outward actions. Now, I know that personally, I've spent too much time working rather than being there for someone when they needed me. Paul said the love of money causes all kinds of evil. The love of money, not money itself. It can't do anything all by itself. And God knows that we need money. We have to get shelter and food and medical care and all of the necessities of life. We also need it so that we can bless others by giving and making sure that they have those necessities when they're struggling. We also need it to support the work of the church and other ministries. So having money, making money, earning money, that in and of itself is not bad. Just remember, money is a tool and we can use it to do good things or we can handle it wrongly by hoarding it and withholding helping other people when we have an abundance. When we do that, Paul says that we wound ourselves with many sorrows. We're tripped up by wanting many foolish and harmful things. That's not something I want for my life or for any of you. So let's take this and let's put together a practical action step. I think it would be amazing if each one of us took some money that maybe we were going to use to splurge on ourselves, give it to someone who is struggling to have those basic necessities. Now that's probably going to look different for all of us. Maybe you are involved with or you know of a ministry to homeless folks. Maybe they could use a little extra blessing so that they can get some of the necessities that they are struggling to provide for themselves. Maybe you want to sponsor a child through a group like Compassion International, making sure that that child has food and medical care and a way to go to school. Or maybe you know a family from your neighborhood or your church that needs help. And at Christmas time, it might even look like partnering with Prison Fellowship and their Angel Tree program so that a prisoner can give their child a gift this Christmas. I truly believe that if you just ask God where he wants you to step up and serve in this way, how he wants you to give, he's going to open up opportunities and, and show them to you. If you have more than enough, like I'm guessing that most of us listening do, find some way to serve someone out of your abundance so that the love of money doesn't even stand a chance of taking root in you. Gosh, this episode has been so much fun. This is such an amazing story, and I'm really glad that we're taking the entire month of December to really investigate everything that it can teach us. I've put links in the show notes to the previous episode in case you missed it. You'll want to go back and listen to that. And there are links to some places where you can serve God by giving from your heart to people in need. If you like this episode, I have nearly three years worth of episodes now, weekly episodes. You can go back and listen to the amazing guests that I've had. They have taught me so much. They've got great safety things. They've got great ways to help yourself or someone you know who has experienced trauma. Just 
all kinds of help out there. And so I want you to check those out. And I want you to think about helping someone else begin their journey as a different kind of PI. And it's a person of impact. And you can do that by sharing this episode. You can subscribe to the podcast. You can help others find out about the podcast by giving a nice review with a five-star rating. And if you want some practical safety tips for your personal safety, for your spiritual safety, you can check out my book, How to Kick Fear to the Curb. It's on Amazon, so you can go find that. Go to my website, The Unlovely Truth. There's lots of resources there that are available through a blog and through lots of different things. So I hope that you'll check all of that out. And don't forget, next week, we'll be following up on the next part of this story. So I really hope to see you all then. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app. 